Well, this will be an interesting one. We got all the kids in the room, and we're going to be talking about Ephesus this morning. And um, if you know anything about Ephesus, it's pretty much Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's a good morning for all the kids to be here. Um, two things. We don't time these sermons very well, or at least I don't, you know. Uh, a couple things before we get started. This afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to have a meeting at our building on 7th and Wallace. If you would all have questions about what's going on with our building, the process we've been through over the last two years since we purchased it, what forward movement looks like, um, we have some information to share this afternoon. We'd love for you to be over there and be part of it. We'll have coffee and some cookies and whatnot. We'd love for you guys to come hang out. Um, <clears throat> even as Sarah was talking about local mission, and we're talking about like the single moms event, these are all ways for you to be connected, to be involved with our church, to be a part of the family business here at Anthem. And so I really want to encourage you, uh, if you call Anthem your church home, like take advantage of the opportunities to you know, come to our meeting this afternoon to know what's going on with the building so that you can communicate that adequately to others. Come take advantage of opportunities to learn about our local missions, uh, missionaries and things we're supporting, initiatives you can get behind in our city because that really helps paint a very holistic view for you of what our church is about, what we value, where we put our, our funds and our resources and our time and where we point our people. And so I would just encourage you to take advantage of these opportunities, even though I know they're hours out of your days. Um, I think it's valuable time. Um, and then, I think there's one more thing. Nope, okay, never mind. All right. Um, we're going to be in First Timothy this morning. We're really only going to be talking about the first three verses uh, in First Timothy chapter one. But if you guys were with us last week, you know we started this new series. We'll be into the fall. We'll we'll be in First Timothy and Second Timothy. And uh, last week may have felt like a lot more information than normal. This week's probably going to feel like a lot more information than normal. Um, it's really just our hope that we lay this foundation for the passages for you before we even dive into them, um, so that when we dive into them, there's some context you have of who it's written to, who's writing it, why he's writing it, what's going on in the city um, that the church is in, that he's writing, uh, that Timothy's in, leading, uh, and, and what, what exactly is going on in that city. And so in order for us to kind of make sense of what we're reading, it's helpful to know who wrote it, who they wrote it to, and what the context is that it's being written in. And so this week, I, I'm gonna just touch base on like who Timothy was, and then I'm gonna jump into the city of Ephesus and give us some context for the city of Ephesus. Uh, again, First and Second Timothy are considered Pauline epistles. How many of you guys have ever heard that statement before, or those words? Epistles. Epistle literally means letter. Uh, you say that a hundred times, it's a really interesting word. Epistle, 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 right? But an epistle is really, it's a letter or a series of letters that are written from an apostle, from an apostle to a church or to an individual. In this case, uh, First and Second Timothy are epistles written from Paul to Timothy. We're basically reading somebody else's mail when we read through First and Second Timothy. Uh, and so as we, as we read through these over the coming weeks, remember that these were written to a specific person and a specific group of people at a specific time. And it's almost as though, again, we're reading somebody else's mail. It wasn't a letter written directly to us, 
but there's a lot that we have to learn and extract from the text that we can apply and kind of overlay over our context today. Many of the issues that Paul's addressing in First and Second Timothy are issues that we see both societally and within the church today, and I think there's a lot for us to learn. Here's the text that I'll read today, kind of set this up for us. First Timothy 1, 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. If you're new with us, something that I want you to know from the get-go is that we are committed to God's word as a church. We believe that it's the inspired word of God, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. We think that actually apart from the word of God, we don't have a whole lot to stand on in this world. Um, we value it, we teach through it verse by verse, we assemble here on Sunday mornings, and our commitment is to really try our best to handle the word of God well, to teach it to you, teach you the scriptures, help us learn more, but also that we don't ever forget who the, heroes, who the hero of the scriptures is. Who? It's Jesus. Like, he's the hero, right? Let me pray, and let's dig in. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this time. I thank you for the families in this room, the kids in this room. Would you bless them? Would you instruct them and teach them? Would you use the parents in this room to invest in their kids? Would these kids not be considered the future church, but the church now? And would we treat them as such, Jesus? They are literally kids who can pray for the sick, who can cast out demons, um, who can raise the dead, Jesus, who can heal. They are empowered by your spirit just as we are, Jesus. And I thank you for each and every one of their lives. I pray this morning um, as we talk about kind of set up First and Second Timothy, that you would give us some nuggets to chew on, Lord, um, but that you'd also just lay a foundation for the weeks to come as we study through your word. And we give you this time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, again, we, we established that this book was an epistle written by the Apostle Paul, written to a young man, probably in his teens, named Timothy. And so who was Timothy? It's very likely that Timothy grew up without a dad. Many think that. The book of Acts says that his mother, Eunice, was a believer, but that his father was a Greek in Acts 16. So at the very least, Timothy's father probably never had a positive spiritual influence on Timothy's life. Some scholars even believe that Timothy's dad uh, may have been even disappointed with Timothy as a result of him choosing to follow Jesus. We don't know this for sure, but we do know um, that, that Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who are spoken of in scripture, discipled him in the faith, like invested in Timothy spiritually. But God seems to have used Paul to play this really significant role in Timothy's life. Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith, is what Paul says. John Stott says that this word nosios, which uh, is the Greek word for this word true, was used literally of children that were born in wedlock, which is a really interesting word. It's possible that Paul was hinting at these circumstances surrounding Timothy's birth. We don't necessarily know, but since his father was a Greek, um, Jewish law would have regarded him as illegitimate. But Paul, however, considered Timothy his true child in the faith. Paul saw value, saw something in Timothy. 
Timothy most likely came to the faith in Christ through Paul. Paul traveled through Lystra, um, Timothy's hometown, on his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. And this is most likely when Timothy came to faith in Jesus. By the time Paul came around for his second missionary journey, he took Timothy as a disciple and as a co-worker. And then Paul chose Timothy because he had such a good reputation amongst the believers in the area. Timothy quickly becomes Paul's like, most influential, faithful disciple. Paul said this of Timothy, that I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. That's pretty amazing that Paul said that of Timothy. Timothy was an effective leader. Later in Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus, we read that Timothy's leadership rooted out the false teachers in Ephesus, so Paul's trust was well-founded in Timothy. Um, Timothy regularly confronted his fears. Many people paint Timothy as this fearful and kind of nervous guy. Maybe some of that is true, but Paul felt the need to tell the Corinthians that if Timothy comes, see that he is with, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. So at the same time, Paul himself was himself like shaking with fear and trembling about as he goes to Corinth and he preaches, preaches to the Corinthians. And so how does this fit with the idea that Timothy was naturally nervous or maybe natural? But if you were in a crazy like this, it probably been easy to, some, to succumb to fear from time to time. For Timothy to lead in a city like Ephesus probably would have been easy to succumb to fear at times. Paul did tell Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. But imagine he, he had a massive church that was filled with these cult practitioners, these false, these false teachers, and the people also looked down on Timothy because he was so young. He was a, he was a kid. Hence Paul's words to Timothy to not let people despise or to look down on you because you are young. The, the word in 1 Timothy 12 says, do not let us but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity that there's something about the young people setting example an example for the believers, like being an example to the believers. Paul and Timothy developed this really close friendship Timothy was able to show the Corinthians how Paul operated in ministry. Paul sends Timothy to strengthen the Thessalonians and the Philippians. And this shows us that Paul actually believed that Timothy was capable of being sent to lead independently of him. Thanks. Paul grew so close to Timothy that he calls him his son. Like their relationship was so tight. And so Paul also speaks of him as a brother. Paul eventually views him as a peer, and this is why they co-author six letters together, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, three of which were in prison, and then lastly, Paul writes some amazing comments to Timothy in these two letters that we're going to be studying over the coming months that show the type of friendship that these two had. 1 Timothy 1.18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, he says, 1 Timothy 3.14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. 2 Timothy 1.4, I'm longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Paul deeply loved Timothy. He had a special place in his heart. 
sort of makes you wonder why God would include this book, these books in the Bible, especially if it's such a personal letter between Paul and between Timothy. But when you read through this, you see that we're given tremendous insight into the nature of friendship and discipleship and, and leadership and how to run the race, the race well to the end. And we have so much to learn from their friendship and their lives. And I hope that you guys kind of see that unpack as we study this over the coming months. When we get to 1 Timothy uh, 1, verse 3, you see Paul talking to Timothy, and he says this. He says, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to stay in Ephesus. So where's Macedonia? I want to ask you guys, we're going to put a, a map up here that, you, yeah, it's going to be hard to see. Um, if you guys have your phones, go to Google and search uh, Roman Empire uh, at the time of Jesus. And you should be able to find a map. And I want you to follow along a little bit because what we don't often think of is how dispersed the gospel became in a pretty short period of time. I mean, it starts in Jerusalem. It starts in Israel, and then it, it fans out. And you see how quickly the gospel takes over as Paul's traveling on these three missionary journeys throughout the whole Roman Empire. So I wanted to show you a map to kind of give you a lay of the land as we're reading through this. Um, look at Israel on the map, and then Jerusalem in Israel, and then when you read the book of Acts, uh, that the gospel, it says that the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth, is what it says. So just south of Jerusalem um, is the desert of Judea, just north of Jerusalem are the mountains of Samaria, and so this is, is the scripture's way of saying that the gospel was starting to go everywhere from Jerusalem out. And then it says that it would go to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, where are the remotest parts of the earth? It was the Roman Empire at that time. that The gospel would go out to the remotest parts. And so these colored areas that you see on this map are where they figured the gospel would begin to go. And so by the way, just up from the city of Jerusalem in Syria, there's this city called Damascus. And Paul, if you remember in Acts chapter nine, had letters to go to the city of Damascus to stomp out the movement of Christianity. And it didn't go so well for him. If you remember, he ends up getting sent home to the city of Tarsus, which is in eastern Turkey, closer to where we'll be talking about in Ephesus. And then the Gentiles started coming to faith. And there were many that came to faith in the city of Antioch. And then Barnabas was sent there to do a little recon as to see like, what was going on in this town. And he's looking for a teacher, and so he just went to the city of Tarsus to find Paul. He brings Paul into the church, and Paul teaches the Christians, and then this is where we get the first term Christians used on our behalf, like referring to us, Christ followers. And so Paul goes on this first missionary journey. He writes one book, the book of Galatians, and he goes into that region, and while he's there, he has this encounter with some guys who are not super fond of him. And if you remember, they stone Paul, they leave him for dead, and then while he's there, uh, he, he finds a young man named Timothy. And all of that to say, on, on the west coast of modern-day Turkey is a city called Ephesus. And so the Roman Empire was super expansive, by the way. Like, it was growing rapidly. It went all the way into Spain, Portugal, all the way even up into Britain. And so that gives you kind of an idea of how large a space we're talking about. And you can see the significance of the city of Ephesus, that the land of this, this ancient Asia Minor, what we, Asia Minor, what we know today to be Turkey. And then there's this land bridge that's now the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, 
And then the reason for its significance is because the trade system in the Roman world was incredible, right? There's over 50,000 miles of paved roads in the Roman Empire. Like, it was bustling. And these roads weren't just used for exporting goods and services. These roads were actually used to export ideas. It was the way things traveled. It was the exporting of culture. It was the movement of people and groups and different ideas all over the world. And that was in within the Roman Empire. And so for the first time in history, in the history of our world, you could get from point A to point B relatively quick with all the, um, the, 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 all the travel options that they had with these roads and bo- by boat and all these options you could go. So the reason we, we wanna walk through some of the history is that it helps you understand why they say what they say and from the context in which they're coming. And even by ge- ge- uh, geography matters, because geography sort of gives us this picture of what's happening in that day. And so when you're thinking about the New Testament, everything from the Gospel of Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation, I want you to have this picture in your mind geographically of where this is taking place because this is the context of the New Testament, of the scriptures that we, really, that we read. And sometimes we can sort of think that the Bible takes place in like Middle Earth or in Narnia or something like that, Right? But it doesn't. There's actually a place now that you can go to. I mean, that's the most amazing part about being able to travel to Israel right now is to be able to stand on the ground and realize this isn't just a fictitious book that I read that's taking place in an ethereal place somewhere. It actually exists today. In 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, he says, remain at Ephesus. And so I want to talk specifically about Ephesus. When you look at the biblical times, there were all kinds of different scales of cities, right? There were villages, there were cities, there were metropolitan cities that were more like trade cities. I mean, it's like we got Raftrum and Athol and Coeur d'Alene is the metro place, right, uh, of the county. And, um, and then you have the cities that were like the cream of the crop, right? These were the cities that weren't just on a trade route, but they actually had a port coming into them. And so they had a way to get there even by boat. And the easiest way typically to get goods and services from point A to point B was to ship them. And so when we look at the city of Ephesus, it was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It had a population of about 250,000 people. Its port was massive. Now, if you go there today hoping to see this port, interestingly enough, you're gonna be super disappointed because due to the silting of the river, the city actually sits like six miles off water today. But in biblical times, if you would have gone to this place, you would have seen a place that literally influenced a region. It had so much influence. It was incredibly wealthy. Like even as they've excavated some of Ephesus today, they've found homes of wealthy people, right? They have things that, um, in these homes that were, are unheard of even in some of our homes today, right? They have mosaic tile floors that were heated. They had running water, how bougie is that, right? Um, at that time, pretty amazing. Some even had like flushable toilets, which is absolutely incredible. Like there were things in Ephesus that you did not find anywhere else. But Ephesus also followed this really strict adherence to what was called the family codes in Roman history or Roman culture. It was a very paternalistic society, very patriarchal. It was really actually a misogynistic culture. 
And so if you were a Roman male, you had all kinds of rights and all kinds of privilege. If you were a Roman female, you had very few. If you were a wealthy person, you had a lot of pull and a lot of influence. If you were a slave, you had nothing. And so it was a very, very unique culture in that regard. And so they had rules for how men should act, how women should act, how slaves and masters should interact with one another. And so as these ideas became imported into the city of Ephesus, many began to, began to rebel against these family codes. And, and so they threw aside these markers of what society should be like, and they sort of imported other cultures that treated people very differently. I mean, not to say that that's exactly what's happening in Coeur d'Alene, but as Coeur d'Alene becomes this mix of cultures of people moving from all over, the city begins to change, doesn't it? Because there's, there's a diverse group of people with different backgrounds and different cultural contexts that come here, and they begin to, they begin to change the city. And it, so it caused a little bit of chaos in these Roman cities. And so that's the backdrop of 1 Timothy. When you get to 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us what the purpose of 1 Timothy is. I read this last week. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So can you see now why he's going to say that I'm writing so that you'll know how you should behave together as members of Christ in the household of God? This is sort of how the gospel informs the way that we treat one another. This isn't just saying that so that you'll be moral or so that you'll just behave. This is saying this, this is how the gospel actually informs our life. It, it changes us. And so you can imagine in a city like Ephesus, if there was like the scale of moral and immoral, Ephesus would be all the way on the other side of the scale of immorality, right? From, the, from an immorality standpoint, Ephesus was so immoral. I mean, there's brothels everywhere. They have carvings in the sidewalks in Ephesus that you can see if you go to today, pictures of body parts and arrows telling you where to go if you're gonna frequent these brothels. And it wasn't just one in Ephesus, it was many, many. Like you can imagine why, it's his port city. Men would come to this place from sea for who knows how long. And then they would finally come into port and then things would get a little bit weird, right? Especially with no plumb line of morality. There's no truth. And so the Romans didn't have much of a conscience in terms of, in terms of morality, especially as it came to their sexuality. One of the problems was that sexuality was even ingrained into their worship, which makes it even gnarlier, right? So they, they, they would worship a goddess, the, the, the Romans called Bacchus or Dionysus. And, and this was a Greek, Greek name, but the same god. And all they did was took the Greek deities and then they'd copy paste uh, the, the names, they just changed the names, but copy-paste the gods, the purposes of the gods. And so this idea of like sexuality, this idea of purity, of holiness, of abstinence was unheard of in the Roman world. Like there was no plumb line for truth. There was no sense of morality. And so First Timothy is gonna reinforce this idea that behavior actually flows from sound doctrine. We have to be grounded somewhere and that begins to influence the way we behave. Meaning if you don't understand what the Bible says, how can you expect one another to live according to what the Bible says? 
So if you have no idea of what God's standard is for righteousness, like don't be surprised if you continually swing and miss. If we've never read the Bible, we have no idea what the plumb line is. If you never read the word of God, you have no idea what's right or what's wrong. And so you've got people that are making their own decisions, talking about what their God thinks about whatever it is with no plumb line for truth. They're just going with the wind. Whatever that God thinks, I'll serve that God. Whatever that God does, I'll serve that God in order to get what that God is offering me. If any of you have traveled to developing nations, especially like India, it is all around you. I went to India one time in the midst of the season when they were worshiping their gods. And I saw firsthand where there was a marketplace for the gods where you could go to the market and buy these little straw gods, these ugly little figurines. And you'd purchase them and you'd worship them for a day and then you'd throw them in the river. And then they were done until the next year. So they believed there was value in this and they would spend a lot of money on it, they would spend time worshiping it, and then they would throw the thing in the river, but who's also making a ton of money off this thing? The dude's making the little gods. It's their business. It's like a whole economy in and of itself, just creating and selling gods. So Paul uh, is gonna connect First Timothy, this idea of the importance of sound doctrine, why we need that, especially given our world today. It's important that we're grounded somewhere. If you look at Acts 18, Acts 18, you see the first mention of the city Ephesus. And Paul's on his second missionary journey. He leaves, leaves the city of Corinth, and he's bringing two folks with him, a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. She's the teacher of the bunch. He's kind of their helping support her ministry, and it's really interesting. It sort of flips the status quo with regards to this paternalistic sort of male-driven thing. And so Paul brings them from Corinth to Ephesus, and then he leaves them there. In fact, in Acts 18, 19, you'll see Paul brings these folks there, leaves them, and says, you stay here, you teach the believers that are here, I gotta go, but I'll be back. And so while they're there in verses 25 and 26, they come across another guy from Corinth, his name is Apollos who's a really good communicator, but he doesn't fully understand the gospel. He knows how to teach, he knows some of the text, but at this point he's untrained, and so they come alongside of him, they disciple him, they pour into this guy. Well, in Acts chapter 19, Paul's gonna take this third missionary journey, and he's gonna actually show up in verse one, and Apollos had left and gone back to Corinth. Paul passed through the, the, the upper country found some of the disciples and starts talking to these guys like, oh, you guys know Jesus? Oh, great. Like, how did you hear about Jesus? Well, this dude from Corinth named Apollos, he told us about Jesus. Paul's like, oh, really? Like, tell me about that. He asks them, so what do you know about the Holy Spirit? And then these guys look at him and they're like, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And Paul's like, what in the world is Apollos teaching you? And so Paul has to sort of re-disciple these guys because again, false teaching was so easily being brought in. Like every other page in 1 Timothy, Paul is fighting for sound doctrine, fighting for sound teaching, fighting for us holding to the truth. Why? Because in the city of Ephesus, false teaching was everywhere. And so Paul's gonna sort of step in and in verses eight and following, he's gonna enter the synagogue. He continues to speak boldly. He's reasoning with everybody that's there. But there are some, it says in verse nine, 
who have become hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. And he withdrew from them. He took away these disciples and he reasons with them. And he reasons with the teachers daily, and it says in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul starts this Bible school of sorts, and he starts discipling in it. This Bible study that becomes a, a little bit bigger, he invites people into it, and he begins to teach sound doctrine. Some suggest that Paul stayed in this place for two to three years teaching people. It's worth noting that Paul spends more time in Ephesus than any other city in the New Testament. But one of the biggest things that's happening in the city of Ephesus were these deities. It was the worship of these gods, many gods. And so now they have the, the, the typical sort of Roman pantheon of like Jupiter and Juno and Minerva and Neptune and Venus and Mars and Apollo and Diana. And Diana is this Roman name. And the Greek name for Diana is Artemis that we see mentioned in Acts 19. That's where it gets really interesting for us in our context. Artemis was worshipped all over the Greek world. And so you're going to see that, uh, that there's this riot in Ephesus that breaks out in Acts chapter 19. But Art Artemis was this pretty fascinating deity. In fact, she's pretty ugly. I have a picture for you. Um, show you what she looks like. Yeah. Anybody want that on their mantle at home? No, thank you, right? She was this goddess of fertility. And the people of Ephesus believed that the statue of her literally fell from heaven. And so, therefore, it was from the gods. They delivered her to us. And so, they worship her. And so, Ephesus was the patron city of her worship. In fact, they, they had this temple to Artemis that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world where, like, there in Ephesus, it's a feature of the city. Um, I have a picture of that as well. It's massive. There's the temple of Artemis. This temple becomes really significant. People come from all over to Ephesus to check out this temple, to partake in it. It's ginormous, 127 columns. It's six stories tall. This thing's a bit of an eyesore, right? Anytime you even get close to the city from the port, you see this massive temple. What kind of statement does that make about your city? Well, in Acts chapter 19, this is where the gospel in Artemis really begin to collide. In Acts 19, there, there's a bit of a revival. Paul's preaching the gospel of Christ. People repent. They start burning their witchcraft books. They start turning to Jesus. It's this really incredible story. But remember that the Romans didn't mind if you worshiped whatever deity you worshiped as long as it was inclusive, as long as you could have multiple. Well, now here comes Paul preaching Christ as in exclusive way, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. Paul is teaching Jesus Christ is the only way to disregard all other gods and turn to Jesus, the one and only God. And so now people are responding to the gospel, right? There's this tension that's rising. And so in Acts 19, verse 21, it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, Go to Jerusalem, saying that after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In verse 24, there's a man named Demetrius. He's a silversmith who makes shrines. These nasty little figures that we just saw of Artemis, he's a guy that would make them. 
And it says that it was bringing him no little business as a craftsman. The guy is getting so wealthy off of creating these little gods, these little statues. He's making tons of money. And so in verse 25, he gathers together all of these folks who are of similar trades, who all do similar things, and he says, look, our prosperity actually depends on this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, right? Paul is persuading, and he's turning people away from them, and there's a considerable number of people that are saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. Paul is disrupt the gospel through Paul is disrupting the Roman Empire. And so he walks into all of these cultures that have had all these little fake deities, and Paul begins to convince them that they're just little gods. They're, they're nothing. They're not the God. They're, they're gods made by hands. Like, it's not the God, the eternal God, the one God. Some dude made these, and they mean nothing, is what Paul's telling them. And so... What is Demetrius actually worried about in this case? Money. Whether it's the taxation of the temple, whether, whether it's these artifacts, these little trinkets he's making, the gospel is actually threatening somebody's livelihood. And then Acts uh, 19, verse 28, all the people that heard this are filled with rage. They start crying out this statement. Oh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. By the way, There's also a distinction between Artemis and Artemis of the Ephesians. If you're saying Artemis of the Ephesians, you're talking about the OG Artemis, the one in Ephesus, like the mother, the, the fertility mother goddess, like the Artemis that holds her home in Ephesus. And so there were lots of other replicas of Artemis in all these other cities, but when they say Artemis of the Ephesians, they're talking about the real thing. And so the, the city is just filled with confusion. They, they rush into a theater that seats 25,000 people. I'll show you a picture of that as well. Oh, it's really hard to see on here. This massive theater, 25,000 people rush to this theater. It says in verse 32, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine shouting that for two hours? We're going to practice that this afternoon. <laughs> great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. And then thankfully, this riot ends up dispersing and the city that's full of religious thoughts, full of religious practices, all kinds of ideas and, and philosophies, like it's all colliding, like the wealthy and the poor, the free, the slave, the master, all of it is happening in the city. And here's Paul just preaching the gospel unashamedly. Let me pull all of this together real quickly and, and I'll end on this. If you look at 1 Timothy 1.1, we saw that Paul is an apostle, was an apostle of Christ. We see in verse 2 that Timothy is his child in the faith. It says in verse 3, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain in Ephesus. And so you get the idea that Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay, possibly stay in Ephesus because maybe Timothy wanted to leave. Maybe there's a sense in Timothy of like, 
I need out of here, man. This place is ridiculous. But why in the world would Timothy want a jet? Well, I think we'll find out in chapter four. He's probably being discredited a little bit because of his age. Uh, He's probably fearful of the culture and the things going on around him. And Paul's saying, yo, bro, you know, young brother, stay put. Like, you're actually right where you need to be. Don't let anyone look down on your youth, Timothy. He says, you stay in Ephesus, and while you're there, you need to actually instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Don't let that come into the church. You need to stand for what's true. You need to drop the plumb line. Don't flinch, Timothy. Hold your course. Like, this is actually God's design. And then in verse four, it goes on to say, do not pay attention to myths or endless genealogies. We don't know, we'll get into this in a, uh, next week, but we don't know the exact extent of what these myths and these, ge- these endless genealogies meant, but we do know this. What's a myth? A myth is, in, is empty of spiritual power, isn't it? It has no substance. It, it, it creates curiosity in people, but it has no substance. It doesn't bring transformation to people's lives. It actually just brings speculation, but not life change. I think we're seeing this in our day and age right now. People are buying into the myths. They're buying it, they're curious, they're speculating, they're getting led astray by these myths and endless genealogies, even as he's talking about here. But these things don't bring about transformation. Only the gospel actually brings about life transformation. Because only the gospel actually deals with deep-rooted issues and sin. And then it goes on, these myths and these endless genealogies give rise merely to speculation rather than the furthering of the plan or the administration of God, which is by faith, the life-changing power of embracing the gospel, even surrounded by paganism. Why is this text here? And I had one thought, and then I'm gonna leave you Three quick points, and then we're done. But I get the feeling from this text that it was hard to live a godly life in an ungodly city. I get the feeling today that we feel the same tension now. It's hard. How do we raise our kids to be godly men and women in paganistic cultures? You understand some of Timothy's fear. You understand some of Paul's fear and trembling, entering into cultures that will just devour them and want nothing less than to take him out by the knees because the gospel that they're preaching destroys all the false gods that the culture has built up. We're living in that day and age today. Now granted, today we have smartphones, we're watching TV, and we're seeing shows that 10 years ago we never thought we'd see these kind of shows on. But can you actually imagine walking down the street in Ephesus and seeing all the brothels that are available, seeing the the temple of Artemis down the street up upon the horizon? Can you imagine walking down the street and hearing that there's a party happening and people are worshiping a god? Or can you imagine seeing the marketplace where you purchase the little figurines that people would go worship? And they're like, do you want to come worship? Like, come check this out. Like, I have to imagine that it would have been extremely tempting to go into a city like that and not feel swayed by the culture. 
It's hard to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And so how do we do it? And there's three things that I want to leave with you that are very simple. One, we embrace the gospel. And not just the idea of the gospel, we immerse ourselves in the story. We read the scriptures. We spend time with Jesus. We know the one in whom the gospel culminates in. And we embrace the gospel. We, we literally cling on to it because we know it is our only hope. Two, you surround yourself with people that embrace the gospel. You can't do this on your own. We need others with us. And three, we hold on to the word of God. There has to be a plumb line of truth that we drop in culture or culture will take us this way and I'm not gonna use terminology like right and left, but this way and that way. Culture will just constantly shift us back and forth. It will always happen. But the Christians come and they drop a plumb line of truth, something that they can set their hope on, something that they can anchor themselves in, something that actually gives them direction in a culture that is directionless. And even though the culture says, like, you're a bigot, even though the culture says that we're archaic, that's old school ways of thinking, even though the culture throws all kinds of accusations out at us, we continue to lovingly hold on to God's word. We embrace it because Jesus is indeed who he said he was, isn't he? And the word of God is inspired by God, by God and we are called to live distinct from the world around us. And yes, we might feel a little bit uncomfortable in this world because it's not our home and our home is in glory, but God has actually planted us here. He's rooted us here to flourish in the midst of this place that is not necessarily our home. That's my hope for our church. As we dive into this, let me ask the worship team to come up. As we dive into these passages in the coming weeks, that you begin to understand what it looks like to drop a plumb line of truth in your life. That, that we begin to understand why structure is important in the church because it's so easy for the church to be swayed this way and that and never have any sense of direction or purpose or straight line that we're going. We'll begin to understand in this text like what it means to actually be godly people placed in an ungodly world but to, un, to hold on to the truth. And I will continue to remind our church till I'm blue in the face that there's something about you being exiles in a foreign land that is not your home, but you still flourish here. I love this, this idea, this concept, that you aren't just here to get by until Jesus comes back. You're here to enjoy what he has created for you to enjoy. To actually love this life. And I'm sick of pessimistic Christianity, right? Or it's just, it's all, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, it's all just trash, like, Jesus come back soon because this place sucks. There's a lot about this place that does not suck. Each of you are one of those things. Canfield Mountain in the backdrop is one of those things. The lake, one of those things. The sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. Like These are some of those things that do not suck. That we have around us constantly as a reminder, this place might suck and feel kind of hellish at times 
but we're reminded that there's somebody else that's with us in the midst of it. That we can enjoy this life, that we can enjoy this journey with Jesus, that you can live godly in an ungodly world, and that that's countercultural, but it's actually good because it gives the culture something to be drawn to. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to worship together. Would you guys just stand with me? If you're here this morning, and um, just plain and simply, there's something in your life that you're going through that you just need prayer for. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I don't care if it's a healing. I don't care if it's marriage. It's a relational thing. I don't care if it's a fear-based thing. I don't care if whatever it is, there's thoughts consuming your mind. There's things that are taking, like, raise your hand. Okay. Anybody who's around those people, lay your hands on those people and let's pray for them. Jesus, we thank you for each of those with their hands up. We don't know their story, but you do. Jesus, we believe that you step into the mess of our lives, that you bring healing, that you do desire for us to flourish, even at times when we feel the tension of the world that we live in. God, I pray against just a pessimistic attitude in your church. I pray, Jesus, for new life to be breathed into us, for you to change our course and our mindset, for us, for our eyes to be set upon the hills, God, above the hills, that we could see where our hope comes from, Jesus. And I pray this afternoon that whatever it is that has caused that hand to raise, that you bring healing, that you restore, that you go into the depths of their hearts and their minds and you begin the process of reconciling to them, them to you and restoring the things that have been taken from them, Jesus, that you would do the work by your spirit that you've promised to do in us, Jesus. We need you in this, on this earth. We need you in this life, God, as we live in a world that constantly wants to pull us this way and that. But we ask, Jesus, that you drop the plumb line in our hearts, that you'd give us something of substance to stand upon something of substance to be anchored to and to find our hope in, and we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If any of you would like prayer while we worship, um, some, something personal that you want to chat with or pray through with somebody, our prayer team's going to be up here at these rugs. We'd love to have you come forward and partake in that time. But as we worship, again, I'll just turn your hearts to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith the one who even in the midst of our worst circumstances in worship can sort of pull our, our minds and our hearts out of the muck and the junk that it so easily gets caught up in. 